Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. And I'm Ian. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that you can bring with you on your next adventure. Our show may not be suitable for young children. But our games really aren't either. Right. Thanks for joining us today here at the Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and your roles don't matter. That's right. Just like how your AC does not matter when you're hit by a fireball. <laughs> Kaboom. <laughs> We'd like to start off each episode by drawing one lucky subscriber's name for their chance to win the five-star rated adventure, Banquet of the Dan. Compliments of Goblinstone. And Goblinstone is a community project for D&D fans that are based out of the UK. And they aim to be a place where you can team up with pros, turn your ideas into excellent products, and give every fan a chance to get published. Yeah, be sure to head on over to goblinstone.com, or you can find their link out on our main page at critacademy.com. Uh, our winner this week is Caveat Malls. Is that how you say it? I have no idea. <laughs> when it comes crashing down and it hurts inside You gotta take a stand, it don't help to hide Congratulations to Caveat Malls. This guy actually won the Claws of Madness a little while ago, so now he has both of our awesome adventures, and I guess that means he doesn't have to listen to us no more. <laughs> well, not for the current prize anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is funny you mention that, because I actually have made a, we've made a new fellowship member. Nice. Um, his name is Jeff Stevens. He's a writer and a uh, content creator for the DMs Guild. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> Um, he actually sent me some content, so I'm sifting through it right now to figure out what it is we want to share. Um, and it is pretty cool stuff, so I'm really excited for that. Um, instead of following just for something to give our subscribers, this will be something that we will be randomly choosing somebody who likes us on and follows us on social media. So if you haven't subscribed and you have followed us on Facebook or Twitter, you will have a chance to win a prize. Before we really get into our show... We have a little segment here where we like to talk a little about about what's going on in our lives. We call it In the Realm. In the Realms. What's going on in your realm, Ian? Well, not too much right now. Just uh, working as usual, third shift. That's rough. Well, gotta pay the bills somehow. Have you been to bed yet? Um, I napped. You nap? Power nap. Dude, I, I'm a fan of power naps, I'll tell you what. Um, I usually don't just because it usually messes with my sleep schedules, mm. but... Today, I made an exception. Yeah, a lot of my work days when I was on second shift went by really quick because I slept through all my breaks. <laughs> Power nap. Does Whatever the body work. good. Yeah. Whatever works. Okay. Playing any new games or anything? Actually, uh, during for, there's a Steam sale going on right now. Yeah. And um, I definitely purchased some DLC that I managed to uh, pick up for the first Dishonored. Oh, very cool. And I was reminded about how hard that game can be when it wants to be. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because I've been—I told you before—I'm listening to a lot of interparty conflict, and they keep talking about Dark Souls. Now, it's not the first time I heard about Dark Souls, but I've never played Dark Souls. I so. actually played Demon Souls, which is the game that came out before Dark Souls, okay. but it's kind of considered the unofficial prequel, if you will. Okay. And just like Dark Souls, it is known for being very difficult. And that's actually what drew my attention. Anybody that knows me is I love challenging content. And ironically, that's. People either love or hate that game for that exact very reason. Well, yeah, and there's some people who just get pissed off. You know who we're t- you know who we're talking to. <laughs> you guys out there who get pissed off when something doesn't go your way. In fact, I recall when I lent Demon Souls to a uh, fr- friend of mine. The very next day on Facebook, I just saw an, on Facebook in all caps, "Demon Souls is the worst game ever." <laughs> I'm, I'm like, ah, he's played it. Excellent. <laughs> so I've put that on my to do to get list. Um, I haven't got it yet. Um, 
I have been because I've been playing other things, but I'm definitely interested in that. But there is the three Dark Souls game, but there's also uh, Bloodborne, which is kind of like a spinoff, if you will. Okay. And that's kind of more of a Victorian era stuff, uh, medieval. But. Oh. Uh, like I said, I have to check it out. I like really hard stuff like that, so we'll see how that goes. Anyway, so that's been going on in my realms. And what's been going on in yours? I actually have been, obviously, I don't want to talk more about Final Fantasy. That uh, is most of where my free time goes, that and Phantom Dust. Um, when I'm not working on stuff for the show, because that, believe it or not, the show keeps me the most busy um, with yeah. all the editing and content generation. But yeah, you have to do quite a few things behind the, the scenes that most people never see. Yeah, uh, all of it, actually. <laughs> um, I write all the notes, I write all the, I pick the, the stories and content that we discuss, and I write it all out on a little piece of paper, or five. <laughs> um, actually, I've been li- I t- mentioned Inner Party Conflict. I've been listening to a lot of them. Um, we actually got a shout-out on their show. Nice. Um, I kind of I cheated. I didn't get all the way caught up. So at about episode 15, I'm like, I'm going to go listen to the new stuff first. Um, so I listened to episode 23 and 24, which are the two newest ones. And they gave us an awesome shout-out. They... You know, so thank you for that very much, Gabe and Jeff. You guys are awesome, and they had a lot of they had some good stuff to say. They love the player tip of the podcast. Don't be, be a, a dick. dick. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool. The other thing I thought was uh, really interesting is I submitted some a magic item, the plummeting pouch, to their hor- uh, dragon's horde, which is pretty cool. So I got to hear their thoughts and stuff on it. So I learned one thing I love about Gabe is he has so much knowledge on lore. It's unreal so i learned a lot of new stuff and i'm gonna steal some of the ideas that i've i've heard for some of my games um why not so um it's very cool if you're a listener and you like us i know one of our listeners has already made their treks over there a couple of them actually they told me like yeah i started listening to interparty conflict thanks to you guys and now i've got two great podcasts smart guys <laughs> yeah i know right um so yeah please do us a favor and head on over and to innerpartyconflict.com and give gabe and jeff a listen and let them know that you uh like their content and just like us submit your submit questions because they're all about answering your questions and while we only do one question episode that's their entire shtick um, and they do it really well. I am act- I actually told Gabe I'm jealous. He's great at segueing into his topics, and it just it's awesome. It's a skill. Yeah, I don't have that at all. <laughs> so, and uh, uh, speaking of segueing, this is the part of the show where we like to thank our sponsors. So yeah, you know I mentioned that uh, Gabe has all this lore that he just remembers and experiences and shares, and you know you all can get that same lore experience as well. You can head on over to audibletrial.com/critacademy and get a free audio book and a free 30-day free trial, and you can get those inspiration for your games, just like uh, we do and Gabe does. And the link you want to check out is audibletrial.com/critacademy. They have, you know, 180,000 books, so give them a shot. What do you got to lose? You're going to get a free book, you know, and you can listen to it when you're com- during your commute. Free book? Can't complain. Moving on to our next segment, let's, let's talk, talk about, about blank. blank. Um, we have a question here from Redditor <laughs> underscore Monty. Now, I'd like to point out that it's actually the word underscore and not the actual symbol underscore. So, props. What is your first-timer mistake as a player? player character or as a dm do you have an interesting story i, I would say dming i went in there un- unprepared with not enough material prepped 
Yeah, that's definitely a problem. Don't do don't do that. And I thought I was gonna be good enough to wing it, but sure enough, oh, didn't work. I, I managed to save myself. Like I definitely the have you oh crap moments here and there. Uh, and that's always kind of a, a not fun to go to, especially if you're kind of put on the spot like that. Right, right. Um, and that's a skill some people have and some people don't. I'm great at winging it. I'm In not. fact, I'll be honest. Half the one shots that I run on the one shot uh, tabletop group. I wing it. Basically, I roll for a villain, their motives, and a location, and then the rest I just I just go with it. I let I play. I basically run my when I wing it. I run off my players. I basically give them one little one or three hooks, and that is my plot. That's how I go. Oh, hey, well we're in the mountains, so maybe there's something that some rocks here. They fly. That's what I feel like they'll run into. You know. So, so, well, and I guess one mistake you can always make as a DM too is, let's face it, your players will always do something that you just don't expect. Yeah, and and how you handle it definitely can influence the entire game. Like one example is I create like a a whole situation where in my Dragon Age game I'm currently running, it's like okay, the Darkspawn are attacking, find out where they're coming from, and sure enough, they find this huge crevasse in the ground, they go inside and investigate, and sure enough, there's an old Dwarven outpost that they explore, and then eventually, being Dragon Age, connects to the Deep Roads, mm-hmm. and that basically made it clear, and and the Deep Roads are a huge underground network that goes on for hundreds and hundreds of miles, and I expected them to go, okay, we find a whole we found the hole in the ground, we found the outpost, let's go back, report, so they can go plug it up. Nope. Like, hey, let's explore the deep roads. <laughs> okay, you walk for hours. You know what? Let's keep going. You walk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> the long road? Yep. Y- you get the idea. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I eventually managed to uh, come up with, with something to run into, but it was like, it's like, well, crap, you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the first game I ever was in, I was told to build a character. I thought I could handle it on my own. This was a 3.0 game. 3.5? 3.5. It's a 3.5 game. And I was tasked with making my own character. I was sure I was doing it right. I certainly did not. I we They were at level 7. So I had to not only make my character, but I had to boost it to level 7. I didn't plan out my build. So mechanically, my char- my fighter was garbage. Um, it was a terrible, terrible experience for not only me, but for everyone else because they ended up spending half the night trying to help me fix my character just for him to die that night. <laughs> and that just brought to me a flashback. What's that? I remember with um, a another group of players, the DM decided to run a 3.5 campaign. Not a long one. Mm-hmm. But he decided to make it, have all of us start off at level 10. And on top of that, made, made us gestalted characters. Mm-hmm. And in old-timey terms, that basically means that you're actually two classes at once. Right. And I don't mean, like, multi-classing. I mean, you level up in both classes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And on top of all that, I never played 3.5. I had no idea how to build a character. I had no idea where the numbers come from, how to level them up, and so on and so forth. Because up to that point, I only played 4th edition, and even then, we just used the character builder, because that did all the work for you. Yeah, which is awesome. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know, D&D Beyond, which is Wizards' program now, Yeah, you can go to their website. Their character builder is available now. So, give it a shot. Check it out. As far as I understand it, what I looked at, it looks like mostly just the basic stuff is on there right now. 
Um, I don't know if that's indefinite, um, but it's enough to play with. In other words, this was in the open source document? Yes. Okay. Um, but it's still worth experiencing. I don't know if that means that's what they're going to offer everyone normally, and then maybe there'll be a small subscription for the other stuff, which is what the, the D&D Insider thing did. Yep. Um, but it's very cool. Um, it is kind of buggy right now. Um, I've issued several um, tickets. Um, but, so. th- but that's why it's in beta right now. Right, right. So, yeah, um, those are our screw-ups. Uh, thanks for your question, underscore Monty. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Talk with your team and try to get people to help you to resolve those. Um, do it in advance if you can, too. Don't wait until the game starts to hope you get it right. But in that same regard, too, though, don't be afraid to ask questions. Yes, right. So that is it for our Let's Talk About Blank segment. So today's main topic is combat options. Combat. My favorite aspect of any RPG. Yes, and 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 honestly, it's the most structured part of the whole experience, right? The most rules apply to that. And I mean, like I, I know you, some people like you for, get the most out of role playing, but guys like me, we love combat. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love combat. Um, I'd rather not spend an entire session in combat, though. That to me is not fun. Um, depends on, depends on the combat. On DMG two seventy one, there is a section called optional combat or combat options. Basically, for those people who don't think there's enough in combat that's not specific enough, or there's some things missing, they have a collection of options to really give you more actions for your players and your enemies, NPCs to really take in combat. And we do want to stress that these are options. You don't have to do them, but there's something to keep in mind if you want to freshen up things every now and then. Yeah, and. I find that they're actually good, and actually I unintentionally added some of these to my games because my players would try to attempt something. And so when I try- resolved it, I would la- later then discover that it was already in there, so I just ended up letting my players do that, and it just became a normal thing. But um, How dare was it to think ahead? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you know, basically, these additional options can make combat even more engaging. Of course, with more option comes slowing down the process because now you give people more options, they spend more time thinking about what they're going to do, and that's not always a fantastic thing. Although, that's what they're, they're off turns for. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> you really would think that, wouldn't you? Um, Joking aside, though, I mean, I guess there are some times where the situation may change for one reason or another, but yeah. <laughs> doesn't and, hurt the planet ahead. Right, and, you know, the other big thing is... Not every because they're optional. Not every game you go to or every table is going to follow those rules, and that can really create a little bit of confusion sometimes too. Oh yeah. For instance, you know the tumble option. If you guys always tumble and that becomes part of your your go to strategy to get you know behind people, and you go to a league game and you say you want to tumble, they're going to look at you like you're a moron if they're not aware that that's an optional rule that you guys implement. So there are some downsides to adding more and more optional rules, just like with homebrew. Mm -hmm. You know, those become normal for certain people, and then you get these issues with um, confusion during gameplay. So, Because that's the worst thing you want, right? If it finally, I've got my whole plan, I've actually taken the time to consider what I'm going to do, I'm observing what's going on, it comes to my turn, and then I can't do that. So now i got to waste more time, everyone else's time, trying to figure out what I'm going to do because it doesn't work. So... And I've certainly had plenty of times throughout the years where I do a mechanic but never looked into it closely. And when, and when I actually tried to do it, it's like, oh, this does not work the way I thought it was going to work. Then there. So, and that backfired in a few cases. <laughs> it, it does. So the first thing we're going to uh, discuss is the uh, initiative variance. 
initiative is something that some people complain about. Um, one of the louder voices is they don't, people don't like initiative, you know? So one of the, and I've actually experimented with several of these because while I like the current initiative, I don't have a problem with it. I do think there's some situations that don't make sense for one character to, um, to act before another. So, of course, that led me to experimenting with these to different degrees. And, and to be fair, that there are some cases where p- players ca- can choose to withhold their action until somebody else goes first in the current rules. But For the, r- the ready action, right? Right. That's not to be confused with hold action, which is an o- older feature. Right. But, like I said, though, that's just one... Or delay action, actually. I'm just, I'm just mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Just, just uh, be clear, that is an option, but right, right. that doesn't fit for every situation. And maybe you want to do something else. Yeah. So, uh... The very first one they have here is initiative score. Now, this basically, just like your passive perception, is a static number. Basically, there's no rolling, and because of that, combat just constantly goes quickly. You don't got to say, roll initiative, and then wait a few minutes for everyone to give you their numbers or whatever have you um, that's going on. Basically, it's just a static 10 plus your dex modifier. That's it. Yep. That's it. It's super simple. Simple. Um, and it's, it actually does speed up combat quite a bit, especially if you have it. Okay. I already know what order everyone's going to come go in. So I don't have to say, all right, uh, who's going first. It's, I know Ian's going first and I know Ryan is going last, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's just the way it's going to work. And then I fit my monsters in there somewhere. Um, now while that definitely speeds up combat, it does become kind of steel and predictable pretty quick. Potentially, yes. Mm-hmm. Not not only does it become predictable and boring, but it becomes easier to manipulate. Right? Mm-hmm. If I'm, you know, if I know the healer is gonna go before the bad guy, I can be a little more careless, knowing that he might heal me, mm-hmm. um, or he'll get an action before the monster. So that predictability is definitely an issue. The next one is the side initiative. Now, if anybody's ever played like Final Fantasy, the old ones where you got the 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 bad guys on one side and the enemies on the other, um, basically what you're doing is each person in the group rolls a d20, and so do all the monsters with no modifiers. And basically, whichever side gets the highest, that team goes first, and then you switch between teams. As in, like a, a whole team goes first, or individually. So, yes. <laughs> Problem number one, um, the whole team gets to go. And that could easily, in some situations, involve a party wipe against one side. Yes. Um, not a fan of that. Um, I did try this. I didn't like it. But I did make an adjustment that made it much cooler. Let's talk about some of the advantages of that first. The coolest thing about that, though, is any person can act in any order. Mm-hmm. So you can strategize. All right. Hey, Ian, give me that buff so my my axe deals an extra 1d4 fire damage. Great. I'm going to charge in and then, you know, immediately after I have that bus. So everyone will make sure you went first because that would make the most sense. We'll put the healer last so anybody that gets damaged can then get healed and the healer knows who, who needs priority. So I do like that it encourages teamwork. Um, I do like that anybody can act in an, any initiative. So it actually helps people to learn what other characters are capable of. Because as we're constantly strategizing, I know that you got a buff. So I know you should, if at all possible, you should go before the rest of us. Sure. You know, and so there's definitely a lot of cool features there that you don't see as much under normal initiative circumstances. Sure. That being said, first team to go first is likely going to wipe out the other team. Especially if your players know what they're doing. Yes. Um, So that definitely is a challenge for the DM to deal with. 
because um, you would have to kind of build your encounter to anticipate that. Mm -hmm. But then if you build it too hard and the enemies go first, it's very possible that there's no players left by the time it's their turn. Run away! Um, so what I have done, and I only ran two games of this, and it seemed to work. Um, I was just putting my toes in the water and trying it. I swapped between the two teams. So one side would go. They would tell me who's going to go. Then an enemy would go. And then somebody on their side would go, then an enemy would go. And I went back and forth. Right. And because because it really kind of goofed the, the action economy. Because if I had less enemies than players, those enemies got to keep got to go more often, right? Sure. Than some of the players. So this goblin might attack three times before the cleric gets to do anything. Of course, one variant you could do too is you just simply st stop going until they rest, the, the rest of the other side win. But the re what I ended up finding is that I actually didn't hate that idea. Um, it still had the teams deciding who would go in what order, mm -hmm. which was good. Um, but it also made the encounters a little bit more challenging. Um, and all the little weenies a little more dangerous. Actually, in the, um, there's one PC game I play called The Banner Saga. I think that actually is how initiative works in that one, too. Oh, yeah? Like, you just, somebody, just alternate one guy on each team each every turn, team? and that's somebody how it works. Even if the ones I have more, you still just alternate every turn. And, yeah. by the way, B Banner Saga, fun game. Oh, I'll have to give it a shot. Um, I actually did like that. Um, the reason I didn't pursue that is because it was harder on me to balance the encounters. Sure. Um, or you just weren't, weren't used to it. Well, and that very may well be, but I actually did like it because the teams were working much closer together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was pretty fun. So I do recommend giving it a shot. The next one is a far more complicated one, and it f definitely slows the game down a lot. Speed factors. Basically, this is designed to create much less predictability by adding modifiers for different things. Whether the modifier is the level of spell you're casting, whether the type of weapon you have, the type of armor you're wearing, the size of your character. Your move speed. Yes. And you had to roll. You had to roll and, and factor in all this stuff every round. Number crunching. Okay, so I understand why it work, why it makes sense because the guy wielding the giant surfboard of a sword should not be as nimble and as quick as the halfling with a rapier, or a ranger, or a ranger, yeah, or an arrow, you know, um, or the the more powerful the spell, a ninth level spell should take more time and power to cast than a cantrip. And you know the incantation is probably much more complex, so. It, there's a table on page 271. We're not going to read all of it. You can go through it. But um, it definitely it definitely slows the game down. But if you only got one or two players, this can make combat a little more interesting. Sure. Um, I did it with two players. And while combat was much slower than it would have been, they were able to feed off of each other. Um, that, in a way, I kind of hadn't seen before. Because... There was times where the great weapon-wielding uh, fighter dropped, just dropped his greatsword because he saw that the, 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 the enemy was staggering, was ready to fall. So by dropping his greatsword and drawing his uh, short sword, he got to go on initiative before the enemy and finish him off. So by changing up their tactics, they could shift their position in the initiative and there certainly is a appeal to dynamic combat right and that that's very dynamic 
Now, I would never run this in like four or more, um, but once you get used to it, it probably goes a little faster. But sure. there's a lot of modifiers and decisions to constantly deal with. The other thing that I don't like about it is they have to decide their action ahead of time at the beginning of combat, right? Mm-hmm. You basically go around the table. What is your, what is it you're going to do? You're going to do this. You have to take that action when it comes up if you can. If you can't, you lose your turn. I don't like that at all. Um, that was actually my biggest problem with it. If they cannot do their action, they lose their turn. Now, let's say uh, I'm going to I'm going to heal the fighter, and he's going to take second wind, and he gets the full D10 plus his con, and he doesn't need my healing no more. Unless I'm under misunderstanding that, I mean, it's a it, it's a pretty big section, but I really didn't like the fact that you could lose an action. I did try an experiment with this for quite a while, though. I took some of the things that I really liked about this. I don't know if you how much of that you remember. But instead, I gave static bonuses, no negatives. I gave static bonuses for size oh, yeah. and armor. So the heavier the armor, you're at heavy armor it was bo- basically a plus zero to speed or to your initiative modifier, while having light or no armor was like a plus three. So my halfling monk kept been going first. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the... The person with the um, the weapons then was in a certain order. I don't, I'm trying to remember offhand, but uh, the heavier weapons had a plus zero, right? Right. And I think the 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 bows had like a plus two, and finesse weapons had a plus three and heavy weapons. Something like that, anyway. Um, and so basically, you knew what your your bonus was based on your equipment, but there was nothing stopping that fighter from dropping his greatsword and drawing a short sword to move himself up a little bit in the initiative. Sure. If they wanted to, I actually really liked that because it made sense that we kept having the issue with the rogues were going last, which made it really challenging on their characters when they're assassins. Right. Um, and that, and there are some rogue builds where you kind of want to go first. Right. And so this kind of gave them a little more control. Now, they still had to roll the D20. Or did we, did we change it to D10 or was it a D20? It was still a D20, still right? It's still D20. Um, they still rolled the D20, just the smaller, faster, more nimble creatures with the finesse weapons had like a plus six to their initiative. While the heavy, the heavy warriors had just whatever their decks or traits that they took to amplify that. Right. Um, which for us worked... I, it worked pretty well. It was kind of hard at first, the first couple of games, because people were trying to get used to it. But well, after we, that, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, once we got used to it, it was fine. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the current initiative process. These are just options if you don't like it or you want to experiment. That's what I do. I love to experiment. We there. How many times did I say, hey, we're going to try this? Quite a few. Um, because I like to find new ways to make the game more engaging for the players. Actually, one, uh, there was one game I played in the past, the... Very unfortunately, short-lived uh, Marvel Super Heroic RP role-playing game, mm-hmm. and the way it handled initiative in that one is you you roll to see who went first. But how it would go though is you essentially pass the torch, where once your turn was done, you picked who goes next. Okay. And you just went down the line until everybody went, and then you just start start all over again. Oh, so once I went, I picked who went after me. Yep. That could be cool. And there were some times where it was more logical to have, have the enemy go first or mm. before certain characters. Right, right. To like maneuver them into the position you want everybody want, want them to be in, so your other players can be act at a higher advantage than they would have they they gone before them. Right, right. It was interesting. I mean, it has plus and minuses, but well, I'm sure. I'm, and, and they all do. I mean, oh yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with changing and adding what you want to your games. Um, these are some options that 
for whatever reason, they decided that, hey, maybe people have a problem with this, so we should give some additional options. And so there are your choices. Um, personally, there is something that I do now that I will never probably stop doing is I do normal initiative, but I ask for it before the game starts. Yeah, um, I, I have play, played quite a few games where we, like uh, like you said, roll initiative before combat even begins, just, um, just so we can... We, just jump in and go yeah well not only that it gives me a couple different things uh first is the dm it gives me kind of an unofficial uh order to give you guys choices so when we're having a conversation i believe i use the initiative to determine who's going to answer first i'll say oh ian's at the ian what were you going to do first or what are you going to say and then i'll go to you know ryan hey uh what did what did you want to do um when we're not even in combat for non-combat stuff so it gave me a nice structure to control the flow of conversation and which it was also useful. kind of what you were saying spread out the out of combat actions among the group yes um so there's a lot of good stuff in that and the next thing that it did is the one thing that i always bugged me and i'm sure i've talked about it before on the show um it's hard to remember what I've cut and what I haven't, <laughs> but um, is when combat starts, I don't like to hear enroll initiative because then it breaks the immersion. To me, there should be no line defined from when it becomes a social encounter to a combat encounter. It should just be a transition. If you guys are in a discussion with a noble and Ian, you decide that, uh, well, I'm going to insult him because I don't like what he's saying. Because he's a dick. And then <laughs> as soon as he says, he gets all angry and mad, he says, take him and he snaps his fingers and the guards already are charging you that to me is when you would say roll initiative and then we'd stop and everybody would roll their numbers and we'd figure it all out instead what happens is you he snaps his fingers the guard rushes you ian there's a guy with a spear charging at you what are you going to do punch him in the nuts you're gonna punch him in the nuts that is the start of combat but you're already taking your turn I'm not saying it's combat. What are you doing? It's this guy's rushing you. How are you going to respond? I'm going to dodge out of the way, and then I'm going to uppercut him into the balls if I can get to it. Or if I'm a halfling, I'm just going to stand in front of him and punch his nuts. That's why nut punchers, if I can stop rolls on, punch people <laughs> in the nuts. And to me, that's a nice fluid transition that the, the, the whole roll initiative kind of gets, ri gets rid of, and you lose that suspense during the game. Um, also, it allows me to change the order of who would go based on a situation so let's say ian you've rolled the top of the initiative but the barbarian thug over here luke decides when they're talking to this harpy uh he says yeah while she's talking i'm just going to charge now technically we should roll initiative and then who goes first but what if he's not the first he definitely was the person to claim he was going to act first so instead what i'll do i was like, okay he's acting first that he is now put at the top of the initiative temporarily, and then once his turn is done, I'll turn to Ian, who's next on the initiative, even though you originally rolled higher. Now, that actually reminds me of one time where, and I'm pretty sure I used this example before at some point, might have been off sh show, whatever, but mm -hmm. we were playing the game Feng Shui. Feng Shui is awesome. I like that. I've only played it once, but it was cool. And there was one point where we checked out where the hostage was, and we found... We knew that she was like in the whatever floor in the apartment complex, mm -hmm. but they but there was a balcony into the apartment. So I'm like, okay, so we know all this, so let's actually plan this out ahead of time. And we basically had our ninja type character basically start crawling th through the ducks. We had the martial arts master scale the wall and manage to go into the balcony in the apartment above that apartment. Yep. And my character, who was a professional assassin, went to the apartment complex across the street. Mm -hmm. I basically bribed somebody to leave their apartment, and, <laughs> and, and I just set up a purchase of that 50 cal. Nice. 
And basically, we planned out ahead of time, like, okay, here's our plan. We're going to go in, save the hostage. Combat starts when I shoot. Right. And that, to me, is awesome. That's the way every game should be, unfortunately. That's actually why I like Feng Shui. Feng Feng Shui was very... Uh, based on like movie directing it was very just there's no real start or end to combat it's just a shift into the cinematic right scenario which is awesome when we establish combat starts when i shoot made sense in that situation right i mean that's no different than anything else if you think about you know a police squad about to break into a house you know mm-hmm. before they don't just say all right everyone roll initiative it's all right guys we're gonna go when i do this and they got their little symbols and they do their little Whatever. So, all right, street charges in place. We, we go in when I blow, blow the doors. Right. So, <laughs> man, we got on a long tangent for that, but there was uh, it was a good th- tangent. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's it for the initiative. Um, now we're gonna talk a little bit about action options. You know, combat actions, stuff you can do. You know, to really enhance the the game. And honestly, I was using this before it was even. <laughs> I realized it was an optional rule, but you know. Being able to climb on top of a much larger creature, A, makes sense. Because, let's face it, with vanilla rules, even though it, what you're doing, hitting a giant in the foot over and over again makes no sense. And, and isn't, isn't cinematically or thematically even interesting at all. I actually remember uh, the webcomic DM of the Rings made fun of this, where they had, like, where, where Legolas, if you will, because it's a Lord of the Rings parody. Mm-hmm. Ooh, this giant elephant! Can, can I r- run up the side, fire a few air- arrows, cut the rope, slide sl- around, and then shoot, shoot this guy? Uh, yes, but you'll be doing the exact same damage, only you're not running acrobatics checks. Which encourages them to not do that. Right. Which, the whole f- point of the game is to try to be able to do things that make you more fun. Right. So, you know, that's a really great example. Why, instead of giving a, okay, I can see, okay, one acrobatics check, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of what this kind of rolls into is, you know, basically your very cinematic description is basically it's going to be a contested check between um, to move into place and basically stay on stay on wherever it is you're trying to get. In this case, so was he swinging like Tarzan after he cut it? Is that what he was going for? Or? Basically, if you like watched the scene in Return of the King, they're basically acting that out. Oh, okay. This kind of allows you to do that. This gives you rules. You know, it says basically you got to make contested checks to to move into place and get on the creature's limb. And, you know, a smaller creature gains advantage on the attack rolls against it while it's mounted on it, Mm -hmm. which makes sense, right? If I'm fighting a massive dragon and this thing is, you know, ancient and is huge, it's not going to stop me from stabbing it unless it's just raw armor is too strong for me to stab through. And we've definitely covered stuff like this already in conversation, mm-hmm. mentioning Shadow of the Colossus, or I know actually the game Dragon's Dogma, actually their combat mechanic actually is based off of scaling creatures. Very and, cool. And hitting them in like a, where it hurts. Right. And I think thematically it adds to a very uh, memorable moment. I know I'd mentioned Ross McConnell, and he talked about, you know, um, I don't think, I don't remember if it was a monk or something running up the, the side of this giant things and down its arm and, and getting grappled by it or something along those lines. And. You know, it it's just seems fun. If you've got a creature that's got massive, like, um, spikes on its back, you say, all right, I climb up on it, and I'm going to anchor myself with my rope to one of its to one of its giant spikes, and I'm just going to stab it as much as I can, you know? That's interesting. And now maybe he's starting to do a lot of damage, so said creature gets really annoyed, and it takes flight, and it tries to grind its back against a, a, a big, giant... Uh, cliff or something to kind of rub you off or it flies through trees to hopefully knock you off right that creates a very cinematic and very 
awesome combat because now if you're on it and it takes flying off, what is everyone else doing? <laughs> they certainly ain't fighting it no more. I actually remember one time, too, where back in 4th edition, I was running my uh, Half-Orc Barbarian, mm-hmm. and we were in the middle of a castle siege, and we were attacked by Dragon Riders. And there actually was one point where I'm like, okay, as this Dragon Rider comes by, I jumped off the wall, and the idea was, like, I'm just going to go for the Rider and try to hijack this dragon. Awesome. And did sure, it work? Well, <laughs> what happened was, sure enough, I did land on the dragon safely. I basically killed the Rider. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that the uh, dragon that he was riding was something called a pack dragon, which bonds to a rider. Oh, no. And they only and they bond for life. Oh, so he wasn't happy that you were there. And on top of that, if they lose the bond to their rider, they teleport back to their home dimension, which is the plane of fire. So did you just fall out of the sky? No. Did you go with it? I, I went with it. Oh, that's awesome. So you just ended up on a completely different plane? Yep. See, that's the kind. That's what makes that type of thing interesting. And my idiot character still tried to tame the dragons because he did not understand you can't tame this thing. <laughs> didn't didn't stop him from trying. So you uh, bet me, bad dragon. Cr- accidentally critical hit. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> to me, this is. I don't think this should even be an optional role. Um, I it just it's too much fun to be an optional role. I really think everyone should allow it. Now you could argue, well, I don't want to allow it. Well, we'll go back to the. The little halfling stabbing the, the ogre in the foot repeatedly. That's not that's not fun. Although it is kind of a hilarious mental image. It is kind of funny, especially if like he like moves his foot and the halfling gets stuck between his two giant toes. <laughs> <laughs> get some toe jam in his face. Yeah, it's funny. All right. Uh, so the next one uh, we actually discussed a little bit off air is uh, the disarm feature. Basically, you can when you make an attack roll, basically verse a contested check by the opponent, and if you succeed, you force them to drop your weapon now the the battlemaster already does this as a maneuver option if it so chooses to take a maneuver but that said that's the only class as far as i recall that can actually do that well and they've actually got a, a an advantage over this optional rule this option rule says there's no damage or other effects are applied okay that's a huge difference um so basically you're foregoing damage to help with control because you know if you're fighting a giant ogre with a massive maul and you can get his maul away from him He's still pretty massive, but he's much less threatening. Yeah, no hammer cat does that. Yeah, so, um, which is definitely, a, that's a really good example. I'm glad you brought that up. It is important to note that if the weapon is two-handed, like, let's say, what an ogre would use, uh, the attack has uh, disadvantage um, because they're gripping it with two hands. So that's pretty uh, pretty important as well. So you want to mm-hmm. take that into consideration. But I like this option to rule. Um, once again, this is something that I've just allowed and I've never really considered an optional rule because I'm of the, the, I'm of the frame of mind that if if it it makes makes sense, sense, do do it. it. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. Um, and why wouldn't you be able to disarm somebody? But with this rule, it gives you a little more structure. Now it's, this is basically how I handled it though. I never did give advantage to the person with two hands. Maybe I should have. And I I probably, and to be fair, that does kind of make sense. Right. And it makes sense, right? It fits. Um, what's really interesting is once you can do, once you've disarmed them. So if anybody has read the, the object interaction, there's a lot you can do in tandem with your movement and your attack action, including picking up objects, flipping switches, or in this case, kicking away a weapon. Oh, so, um, off the cliff. Yeah. Well, (laughs) in more than once, I've allowed my players to disarm an opponent and then in tandem with their movement or attack, kick it away five feet. So it's out of their reach. So if they want to go for it, it's only five foot away. Well, it'd be 10 feet, I think, because they would have to move out of combat to actually go pick it up, which provokes op attacks. Oh, yeah. Which 
once again, not nearly as powerful as what they probably could have did with their action on their turn. But by disarming them, you've made them a little weaker. Um, so you have less risk to your sorcerers or um, if you're really low on health, this is a good strategy because then you don't got to worry about if you're going to get a heal or not. They're going to, what's he going to do? He might grapple you or punch you or maybe they got a hidden weapon. I've done that where, mm -hmm. you know, most of my scouts and stuff carry hidden daggers. All of them do. It's kind of a, hey, there goes my sword. Well, now I got a dagger to your throat. Much less damage, but way more than their fist. Unless you're a monk. I've definitely played some RPGs where they actually had rules like that built in by default, which was definitely a, a nice factor. And also, we mentioned disarm, and as you said before, we can definitely kick it away, but let's face it, it can be hilarious to you, grab their weapon and go, sucker, and run away. And run away. <laughs> or beat them, beat them with their own weapon if you're proficient. That could be fun. Take the uh, barbarian's great axe and hit him back with it. Yeah, well, I mean, this really can weaken. This is a, if you think about it, this could be a huge debuff to the enemy. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if it's a barbarian, like you just said, you take that barbarian's great sword of great axe, they're still a barbarian, but they're <laughs> not nearly as terrifying. And you could have one character just running away from the whole time. <laughs> Nan and a boo boo, you can't get me. No D12 damage for you. Yeah, and that lowers their threat because there are no those bonus to crit ranges and stuff. I mean, there's just there's a lot of good stuff about this. And once again, this is something that I've already always allowed, but I don't think I've gone out of my way to say, hey, this is something you can use. It usually as a player says I want to do this, let's do it. So, yeah, Disarm, really cool. Um, once again, I really like these options. I use most of them, so um, it just makes combat engaging. Or maybe you just gradually add them. Wait until somebody asks about it, then add it. All right, guys, uh, Ian wants to uh, disarm this guy, so let's talk about Disarm. Here is the rules we're following, so you can do it now. Now, another optional rule we can throw in there is marking, and some of you from 4th edition might recall this because some classes did that on my, like, fighters, mm -hmm. rangers, whatever. But basically what you do is when you get into a melee attack, you can mark a creature when you hit them, and that can grant you a few things. It can like grant you advantages on opportunity attacks for that turn against them, and uh, opportunity attacks don't consume a reaction, but you can only do one. And if you can't take a reaction for any particular reason, you can't take an opportunity attack. But it's pretty good, though, for like uh, tanking. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think this is really nice if you have an issue where some people are dying all the time. I ran this in only a few games. Um, we had three mages and a warrior. And the mages would die in a hit. I say mages. I, that's a general term for all the squishies, the sorcerer, the warlock, the... The spellcasters. Um, the spellcasters. Um, it's my World of Warcraft coming through. Um, but they kept dying all the time because they could really just take one hit. And at level one, there's not a whole lot they can do. So I told the fighter, uh, I gave him a, a shield... And it was a magical shield, and it had this feature. All so right. for him, it wasn't it wasn't a feature that everyone can do. It was a magical item that I gave him that had a very limited use. And actually, if you keep using a feature like this, it definitely would make the weapon shield styles for like a fighters or a paladins a lot more viable. Yeah, and more appealing, right? In general, um, and because of that, it only applied to him. Mm -hmm. um, I've never used this as a whole group in allowing all melee attacks because to me that's ridiculous because now all the melee attacks will be able to trigger almost every single... Although inversely though, that means the enemies can do it too. Oh yeah, yeah, sword and board, um, definitely. And I do like it because it does allow for reaction to get more love um, because I don't think it does get an, enough love. Depends, depends on the class, but yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. I know that the anybody that's a tiefling always uses it for hellish rebuke. <laughs> or Dang, right, ma we do. A mage uses it for a shield. 
So yeah, this is really cool, especially if your team dies, if you got a lot of squishies, and you just want to make the, t the, the sword and board person a little more viable. I personally don't like it because it says uh, just melee attacks, which is why I made it a magic item right. for that guy, which meant he could only use it when he was using a shield. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of forced him into using a single, uh, a single weapon, so it didn't increase his damage too much. But it also gave him more options to use his reaction. So he could usually, in that case, he had the protection ability. So he could either use it to give disadvantage to protect them, or he could up his damage by attacking. Right. And depending on the scenario, like when the guys were weaker, he would just attack and hopefully finish them off, as opposed to forcing the disadvantage and hoping it missed the the caster so mm -hmm. i can definitely see the use of this um like i said i haven't used it too much but i definitely think it uh has its uses oh yeah um the next one we have is overrun basically a creature can force their way through a hostile creature's space i love this they can actually use their bonus action to make a contested strength um so what you could do is you could charge the person and take the um overrun action get behind them Use a grapple and, like, suplex them or something like that. Off the boat. Off the boat. <laughs> off a cliff. <laughs> off a dock. Off an airship. <laughs> <laughs> off anything you can think of. I personally haven't used this very much, um, but I like that they can force their way because it makes sense. If I'm going to run at you, Ian, full force, you to try not, to get behind you. You may not hurt me much, but definitely would knock me aside. Sure. Right. It would push you. And it may not push you out of your square, but it lets me pass through where you're at. Let's make sure there's clear. This doesn't let you. You don't move people. You just pass through their square to get to the other side. Or could just be the other guy, the guy running at them. They just, well, step out of your way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a, like a, like a bullfighter. Yep. Ole! Yep. <laughs> You do get advantage if the overrunner is larger than the defender. So, and once again, that makes more sense. If I'm a Goliath and I'm trying to run right over top of a halfling, I better damn well have a better chance to succeed than if I'm running through another Goliath. Everything's bigger than a halfling. Uh, <laughs> so, um, fairies. I haven't used this, but I definitely can see the the usefulness of it, especially if you're in a like a a, a corridor and they've got like sword and board fighters blocking the way and you've got rangers pin-cushioning your team, the fighter could then go in and disrupt that if he could get past the defenses. So I definitely can see the use for this. Shoot, I remember one time where we were in a cave structure one time with a lot of open platforms, and there were a lot of ranged enemies that were pelting our player characters, but there were a lot of melee characters kind of like blocking the way. Right. So kind of to, to correlate to the, the forcing your way through um, a square, we talked briefly about shove and how it can knock somebody 10 feet, or it can knock them prone. Useful. Um, shove aside is an optional rule that really allows you to move the target in any direction within 5 feet, mm -hmm. instead of just pushing them back. Um, once again, not something I th realized was really a rule, and maybe because I didn't follow the rules as written entirely, I've kind of always allowed this. It makes no difference to me if you move the character back, or if you circle around and attack them from the left, enforce them back that direction either way you're going to get them the low direction you want right right and actually that dragon age rpg actually has this kicked into two skirmishing actions oh very cool especially if you're a two-handed fighter yeah so with the shove the shove aside um the attacker does have disadvantage but you basically can push somebody out of their square in any direction you want instead of just away um once again kind of always done that never been a problem npcs can do it to you too i always talk about all these things that i like to do my NPCs do them long before my players do them because, A, it helps me figure out how viable they are and then also opens up 
the eyes of the players are like, oh, I didn't think of that type of scenario. We can do that? Yeah. <laughs> I like to do all kinds of crazy stuff on my NPCs. All right, and another option we have here is tumbling. Every day I'm tumbling. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I know it was bad. <laughs> but basically, it allows the creature to try and duck and roll through a uh, hostile creature's space. And there's some definitely some tactical reasons you'd want to do that. And you can use a contested acrobatics check. Halflings love this. And we've definitely used it. The, for, our ro- for most rogues, that's usually not a problem most of the time. Yeah, uh, so uh, I'm a big fan of fail forward. So if Ian decides he wants to tumble past this orc chieftain um, and he rolls a five, he's still going to successfully tumble past him. The only difference is my orc is going to Neat. swing at the guy barrel rolling next to him. Or just need the halfling in the face. Or just need the halfling in the face. That's something that I've done. That's not necessarily something that's part of it. Basically, it just allows you to move around. Um, but I do like that, though, just because it gives you a chance for something to go wrong if you fail. Because right. that's something you always want to take into consideration when you give players options. Yes. and, and you, you, want, you, you want them to think about their actions, too. Yeah, and what are the consequences, right? Uh, I love consequences. Fail forward is a really good mantra. You should all follow it. Uh, I think we had in the entire episode we talked about a branching is when somebody rolls something, the story, the everything should still move forward regardless of what they roll. Just how they roll determines how it moves forward. In this case, he wants to tumble. He's going to end up there. Just he might be dead when he ends up there, depending on how much HP he's got. Um, so there's risks with those things. Um, so that's it for the action options. Uh, the next one is, <laughs> once again, hitting cover. This is something that I've just always made sense to me. Ian, so if you're ducking behind a rock, and that rock gives you plus two to your AC. Ha! The idea is that, that that difference is what made it so you didn't get hit. Right. And that's kind of how I've always taken it. I hadn't always ruled this way. Other creatures can be cover, can provide cover. Oh, totally. So this yeah. gives you a, a mechanic to kind of repre- represent that. Protect me, meat shield! <laughs> so if Mr. Halfling... Uh, Nut puncher over here is ducking behind the Goliath. Let's say the Goliath has a 15 AC and the halfling has a 16. A 16, but now you've got partial cover, so what's that give you a plus two, right? Something like that. Um, so now you're an 18. If an arrow is launched at Mr. Nut puncher here and it hits like a 17, misses me, but hits the Goliath. As long as it beats the meat shield's AC, it's going to hit. And in this case, a 17 beats his 15. Or if you're hiding behind some, like, a solid piece of cover and get hit by a, an attack spell, well, cover's now gone. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, so this is pretty simple. Um, once again, this is something that just, it always made sense. So why it's just an optional rule, I think it's just because of simplicity. And there's definitely, simplicity is important. Right, and that's that's the whole premise of 5th edition is it's streamlined. Mm-hmm. So I can see why they chose to make these optional rules, but once again, because it made sense, why wouldn't you already be doing that? Right. Um, but for simplicity's sake, I, I do understand that. So once again, this is something that I already do, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't work out, you know, for both parties involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, hitting cover. The next thing we're going to discuss is cleaving through creatures. Now, I actually turned this into a... Me- once again, just like I did with the uh, other the other um, mark, I created cleaving through creatures as a part of a magical item. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Basically, if you like running hordes of minions and monsters against your players, this allows for quicker clearing, which was a big thing in 4th edition, right? You had minions. Oh, yeah. They all had 1 HP, and you would have attacks that would just wipe out minions. That was the whole abilities. It wasn't very much damage. It was enough to wipe out a minion. Minions were fun. But basically, uh, when an undamaged... See, now, the, the one thing I didn't like about this rule, because it says any melee. Once again, I don't like that. This, to me, should only be great weapons. And that makes sense. Um, I don't think you should be able to cleave through and just keep hitting stuff. Great weapons makes more sense. I cleave with my dagger. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. And now, I guess if you reflavor it that your your rogue is spinning and dashing and spinning in circles, you know, and slicing and dicing, then maybe, but... Oh, the old boring barbarian. Yeah. But I think that this is something that should be unique to two-handers, which I made it a, uh, a feature of uh, two-handed weapons, but... Uh, there was a feat, actually, that does give you a kind of a cleaving option if you kill something, but... Great weapon. Yeah. Master. Yeah, that's it. One of the things that Great Weapon Master gives you is on your turn, when you store, score a critical hit with a melee weapon or reduce a creature to zero hit points with one, you can make one me melee attack as a bonus action. Yeah, so that actually is different. So yeah, that one lets you, lets you do another attack as a bonus action. With Cleaving Through Creatures, uh, when an undamaged creature is basically one-shotted, right? It's, it's hit in a single swing. Um, the excess damage can carry over to another creature within five feet that's adjacent to it, right? Adjacent to you within reach. Right. Um, so the original attack roll is then compared to that creature they see. If it, if it meets the AC, then it still hits the creature, and any excess damage from the original attack is rolled over to that creature. So if we've got three goblins surrounding this barbarian <laughs> who has a great, a great axe, and he rolls... 15 damage, and each of those goblins has, let's say, let's say six for the sake of this one. Okay. Um, he's going to not only cleave through the first one, not only the second one, but he's going to hit the third one, but not necessarily kill it. And I've definitely seen a variation of this too, where if they're not at full health in the first swing, but you still do, do enough to kill them, it, the access does keep going. Right. And you could make that a variant option uh, to this rule if you decide to use it. This makes sense for me for all heavy melee weapons. Sure. Um, because it's kind of, it makes sense. If I'm swinging this giant surfboard of a blade and it cleaves right through the neck of that goblin, there's nothing stopping the excess force from going to the next one. And an enemy loves this, like berserk. Yes, yes. So, yeah, definitely try this out. If you're a DM who likes to put your group up against, you know, many, many enemies, this is a really fun thing to do. Once again, I don't think this should be something that one-handed weapons should be able to do. I think it should be unique to two-handed weapons. But you can follow this, give it a shot, and see what you think about it. But at the end of the day, your game, your rules. Yeah. So the next thing we're going to discuss is injuries. Now, bum, bum, bum. normally in 5th edition, when, or more normally in any RPG, your Most, damage yeah. doesn't really linger. It doesn't really hang around. It... it it kind of just goes away once you're healed or over a little bit of time. But there's no really permanent effect. If Nut Puncher charges to punch this ogre in the balls and it punch you away and it slams you into a wall, you fall, you're at 3 HP down from 50, you still get up and walk around as if there's nothing wrong. Oh! <laughs> this option puts lingering effects on those. So now, instead of just getting up and walking away, hey, Ian, you just charge that ogre. You ran in, dash in, his foot winds up. He punched you so hard, you feel your ribs crack. As you slam into the wall, you can feel bones in your back break as you fall to the ground. Yeah, that's right. 
I can take anything you throw at. Oh, there goes my organs. <laughs> <laughs> so with this one, now he might having a lasting effect. Maybe that. Maybe the the ribs are cracked, so now he can't breathe as well. Maybe he doesn't recover exhaustion. Maybe uh, he's got a, a permanent scar from that. Or in gameplay terms, for that round comment anyway, that actually might give him exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. Um, maybe, maybe when uh, you get hit with a critical hit and go to zero. Um, Maybe your arm falls, gets chopped off. Maybe your leg gets chopped off. Maybe you lose an eye. There's a lot of different... Or get a wicked scar at the very least. <laughs> yeah, wicked scar. Um, th- there's a lot of lingering effects. And there's a table on page 272 that has just a very nice collection. In the DMG. In the DMG to, to look at. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but... This, this, this optional rule allows you to really expand upon that. If you like the more gritty, real, more, more gritty realism. You know, in... These these special effects would be triggered by some special condition. Obviously, the most obvious one that would make sense would be... I lose a limb. On a crit. On a crit. On a critical hit, right? Yeah. Um, you could do it instead that when they fall to zero HP. Or maybe when they fail a saving death throw. Or two. Um, so there's a couple different options for that. It makes the most sense for me um, when a character falls to zero. Shoot, I remember at one point where we had a character in one game get splashed by some lava that player like I don't have permanent scars from that because it's a freaking lava <laughs> but there's nothing in the rule that stipulates that nope and that's kind of the whole point of this um and I've done this um we've talked on the show before about Brandon who was trying to disarm a trap in roll to one and it crushed his finger ow so the 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 healer who was very particular about the fact that she's extremely inexperienced and barely knows what she's doing. I had her do a medicine check. She rolled like a one or two or something. So, with Brandon's permission, we agreed that she reattached it backwards, upside down. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was his. He was using a. He was a bow user. So the he the fingers he pulled with his bow with the finger was backwards. Um. So you uh might want to go to an actual clerk to fix that. Yeah. Uh, so mm. that mechanically didn't really affect him. But some of these could, you know, having a festering wound that if somebody gets infected with gets hit with something, let's say they get dropped to zero mm-hmm. and they something infects their wound. Maybe if they don't get it, 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 it then creates some sort of disease effect. One of the disease effects in the DMG. Disease effect, exhaustion effect, uh, ongoing damage. Any number of things. Or if you get dismembered, maybe you, you, you lose a leg. So you get a peg leg. So mechanically, you probably lose like five, ten feet sure. of movement. Which would suck, but, I mean, there is enough magic in the world to go and get it fixed eventually. But it seems like that could be really, really fun to run with. Like like the Blade Runner guy, you know, the guy with the, the prosthetics. Mm-hmm. You know, he's known for that. You know, you could become the, the, the Blade Run-thrower, you know, where you got two peg legs and a, and a rapier. <laughs> and you stab somebody. There goes Stumpy. <laughs> but, yeah, especially... As long as the players are okay with that, and they're the newest part of the game, most definitely. Right. You, yeah. And this is if you decide to do this, this should be something that's definitely agreed to by the group. Because I in don't, advance. Because I've definitely been, been in some games where some GM, D, DMs or GMs decided to do something like, like this out of the blue, and that kind of pissed off a lot of people because it never came up before, and there's nothing in the rules yeah. about it. We basically got hit with an area fire spell, and the GM of the blue decided to do anything that was flammable on us is burned away. And doesn't, don't, don't they generally specifically say that it doesn't burn anything you're carrying? Uh, in, in some games, yes. Oh, not in the one you were playing particularly? 
Well, the rules never said anything about that. Oh, so he just added it after the fact without really telling anybody. Right, and saying that my character was, was a bow user oh, we're, no. wearing leather armor, and it affected other characters in some weird fashion. We were not cool with that, especially out of the blue. Yeah. Did he, did he, so did that apply if you used a fireball on the enemies? Well, none of us were, were mages, so. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, that would suck. So, yeah, you don't want to... Uh, you don't want to... Don't, don't just, do that. <laughs> don't just surprise your players like that, LW. When you're playing, like a... As we were saying a moment ago, like a very realistic, very lethal game, make sure you talk that out ahead of time. Make sure your players know what they're getting into. Yeah, because you, it's more likely that your players are going to build a strategy in a group based on, hey, this is good. We probably should get a healer because we could really lose an arm or something, you know? If they know that in advance, they'll probably build their team and their skill sets a little differently than they would have if they didn't know that they could lose eyes and other body parts. Whereas if you actually get into a few few sessions and you see springs on them too, that could definitely create a lot of animosity between a GM and his players. Oh, for sure. So kind of sticking with the whole, you know, damage and wounding and stuff, uh, there is a massive damage option. So... Basically, allows creatures to easily fel- be felled by massive impacts of damage. Um, you hit them so hard that you shot them in one shot. Yeah. Um, you know, so if a creature takes too much damage, it basically forces a DC uh, 15 con save. Failure leads to suffering effects on the system shock chart that you can find on page uh, 273. You know, for example, you know, uh, a creature that's max hit points is 30. Must make a constitution saving throw if it takes 15 or more from a single source. So half, yeah. So about half damage. So And that makes sense. So, you know, uh, on the system shock, you know, you basically when somebody's hit with that time of effect and they fail, you roll on this. And if, and on a one, uh, the creature drops to zero just instantly. They just, their body can't take the, take the, the stress and it shuts down. On a two or three, the creature drops uh, to zero hit points but is already stable. So you don't have to roll death saving throws, which is pretty cool. But same condition, yep, you're, you're pretty much out. Um, on a four to five, the creature is stunned until the end of the next turn. So I, this to me remind, reminds me very much of somebody getting hit with a massive club, and they're just like Ugh, as they get hit, and they're trying, they're recoiling from the the, the raw impact. And I've definitely had some characters like lose two thirds of their HP in one shot before. So yeah. Um, on a six or seven, a creature can't take reaction and has disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks until the end of its next turn. Mm-hmm. And then on an eight to ten, the creature can't take uh, reactions until the end of its next turn. So um, it's not terribly dangerous or scary, but it's enough to have. It makes people think twice. Yeah, I don't think that I've actually used this yet, but I think I'm going to now. So the system shock is pretty cool. Um, it really gives a lot of oomph to those. Um, those big hits that come and it's a real clear identifier to your players that damn that guy hits hard so that guy hits like a truck that that we in medieval times know what a truck is but he hits <laughs> like a truck it's like a ox pulled cart <laughs> um and then the last uh thing we're going to talk about today is morale morale yes um this is actually more of a use for the dm it basically is a tool designed to help you determine how your NPCs are going to react um, in certain situations and when they're going to take the flea action. Charge! Mage cast fireball. Run away! And, and that really is what it should be like. You know, we always get into the mindset that they're going to fight to the death, but let's be honest, they probably wouldn't in most cases. You know, um, if you got a collection of kobolds and 
half of them die. The other half probably going to run away. Yeah, I've definitely played some games where some uh, thieves tried to ambush the players. Most of them got killed, and the last guy, guy standing jumped into the river, floated away. Flipping them off? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, you know, if a creature gets surprised, you know, if I'm a lily little kobold and I'm packaging some stuff into, you know, a, a sat- satchel, and then five adventurers come around a corner and scare the crap out of me, I might just run away. Oh, yeah. Um, or maybe t- those same 12 kobolds are fighting Nut Puncher and can't hit him. They cannot hit him at all. They might, like, I can't, we can't beat this guy. Let's run. They might run away, or they're fighting a giant paladin, and they just he's just a juggernaut. They just, they'll leave. Yeah, I'm now picturing in my head a scenario where the players stumble across a barbarian, like, it's just one guy. We can take him. They ambush him. They hit him. He runs away. Like, oh, it's one guy. We can take him. Let's just take our time as we catch up. They, they follow him. They catch up to him. But now his tattoos are something glowing. He had prep time, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> The, the optional role morale also does good for groups. Um, you know, if a leader is taken prisoner or is killed or is somehow removed from battle altogether, it's, his minions might lose confidence. Or punching the nut so hard he drops prone. <laughs> um, you know... Humiliated so hard that no one takes him seriously anymore. Yeah, you know, if a, if a creature is hit so bad, he's, he's, he hits half health, you know. Fourth edition was called Bloodied, right? You know. Yep. You know, this gives you some guidelines on when to have your enemies retreat. They shouldn't always just stand there to be experience points. Nope. They should want to survive. And that's a good way to make reoccurring villains, right? If the villains constantly get stronger as the party gets stronger, but they're never quite strong enough. You have not seen the last of us! (laughs) You know, you can use a wisdom saving throw if an enemy is just overwhelmingly powerful. um, And if they fail, they run away. I think there's a a feature for that called... uh, Frightened, I think. Fear. Yeah, frightened. Yeah, frightened. Fear. That's yeah. the condition. What yeah. is the feature called? The feature is called uh, fear. Uh, fear. F- uh, frightful presence or fearful presence. Depends or? on the class build and the creature and or the spell. Maybe because I know like dragons have it. Like, actually, speaking of a <laughs> reoccurring villain, I remember we were playing Gamerold one time where we attacked some sort of like uh, mutant boss, and he had like a uh, rat as a pet. <laughs> and we killed the rat but it fell into some toxic goo and we actually ran to that same rat again only that time it was a dire rat oh that's awesome we killed yeah. it. do you have a missing yeah. missing uh ear like splinter or something like that is that how yeah. you identified it or yeah. same markings oh okay and we killed it but something miscellaneous happened we ignored it, it came back as a, as a were rat okay we killed it again it came back as a, a cybernetic were rat that's awesome we, and- we tell it more than five miles straight up into the air and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so that's a good example of why using morale and running your having your players run, your creatures run away is a good idea. Yep. So um, that is it for our main topic today: combat options. Gotta love options. <laughs> you know, we just discussed all these different combat options. What would your characters do if they just arrived in a village with a man stumbling across? A woman screaming for him to be saved. And you look up and he's got tentacles flailing out of his stomach. And he, he looks like he's gasping for air. Kill it with fire! Which, which <laughs> combat option would your players take? Fireball! <laughs> well, you can find out. Because every episode we give away an amazing best-selling adventure, The Claws of Madness. Compliments of Lorsmith. Laura Smith is a small indie team of creative artists who remember exploring the realms together with friends, finding incredible places, and meeting colorful characters along the way. 
They set out to deliver an experience that sparks those lasting impressions that pushed them to create their first standalone adventure, The Claws of Madness. Madness! The best-selling adventure is one you do not want to miss. This week's winner is... Forgive me for butchering this, but I'm going to say it's Seng Saoya. When it comes crashing down and it hurts inside You gotta take a stand, it don't help to hide Congratulations to Zheng Shaoria. With a J. Zheng, god damn it, dude. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, congrats. <laughs> You'll get an email from me. <laughs> um... Uh, now on to our favorite segment, our unearthed tips and tricks. So our character <laughs> concept of the podcast today is... Hideously disfigured. Um, this is a pretty simple character concept. You know, maybe the char- character starts off as a beggar and, you know, he's been allowing himself to be experimented on by, you know, alchemists to, to get a few extra change to to really just survive at this point. Um, or maybe he just has his face burned by ass and just hides in an opera house. Oh, there you go. That sounds familiar. Is he like a phantom? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, any way you want to slice it, you know, whether you're slicing their face or it's alchemic potions or burns, having the character be completely disfigured in a way that just scares people beyond, you know, just that they're a different race. Because we know, like... I'm a burn victim, you dick! (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's their face is disfigured or maybe their hands are all weird, so instead of holding a dagger, it's like strapped onto their hand or something like that. Um, I feel like this could lead to a lot of constant NPC fear and insults, and you know, people kind of talking about you as you as you you walk by and you kind of overhear, you know, all the insults. You know, look, dude, I just took one to me most of the face. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Um, you know, and maybe maybe you've got something to cover it up. You know, like the Phantom of the Opera, he's got that one one part that you know that covers up the mm-hmm. yeah, that covers up the part that's you messed up. Or maybe the character constantly hides behind a cowl or or some other uh, way to hide their face. I'm Batman. So yeah, it's it's a pretty simple concept. I really think it would be really fun is if you had a disfigured person with a really high charisma, <laughs> where like he's really if somebody looks at him, they'll be like, <sighs> but as soon as he like talks, he'll have this. But my dear, I've got the best options for you. Would you come here a moment so that we can discuss our business? I have much to ask you. You know, uh, something very just sly. Hey, that's a good idea. Um, you know, everyone says that low charisma means you're ugly, and that's really no, not not no. the case. And if you think that, um, you're wrong. Um, so, but I think that would be really interesting. Um, I actually had a player run this, um, and it was the alchemic things. He's like, yeah, I was a, I was a hermit, and I ran out of food or something. I don't remember his whole spiel, but he's like, I got experimented on for money, and now my face is all messed up, and my whole half of his body was, was weird. Um, so, yeah, definitely give it a shot. I, um, come up with a very unique disfigure and why you're disfigured. Um, that is our character concept of the podcast, Hideously Disfigured. Meatball face. Meatball face. <laughs> Your face looks like an avocado had socks with an older, uglier avocado. So our monster variant of the podcast is the Stormhound. Originally the Hellhound. Imagine that. But maybe with lightning. Real lightning! Yes, the best kind of lightning, the biggest lightning, the greatest lightning. It's the bigliest in the world. I'm telling you what, nobody has lightning like the Stormhound, okay? It's <laughs> the best, okay? The um, best. Around. Um... So the f- there's a couple different features on here. The first thing, we have to replace the fire immunity with lightning immunity. Real lightning. 
The next thing you want to do is you're going to replace the fire breath with lightning breath. So this recharges on a five to six. The, the storm howl exhales a line of lightning that is 20 feet long and five feet wide. Each creature in that line makes a DC 12 dexterity saving throw, taking 21 or 66 lightning damage on a failed save or half as much damage on a successful one. That sounds interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. It sounds like um, more of a shock than looking at nine bolt. <laughs> <laughs> what makes this character really interesting is the next feature teleportation <laughs> yep it recharges on a four to six the storm hound turns into a bolt of lightning and magically teleports along with any equipment it is wearing or carrying up to 40 feet to an unoccupied space and can see yeah. upon arrival a thunderous force explodes from the storm hound each creature in a 15 foot cube originating from the storm hound must make a dc 12 constitution saving throw on a failed save creatures take 2d8 thunder damage and are pushed 10 feet away from the Stormhound. On a successful save, the creature takes half as much and isn't pushed. In addition, unsecured objects that are completely within the area of effect are automatically pushed away 10 feet from the Stormhound, and the spell emits a thunderous boom that, that goes out up to 300 feet. I like it. <laughs> yeah, he basically, not only does he have his lightning breath, but when he teleports, it casts Thunder Wave, basically. It takes his action to teleport, right? Yeah. So thus it becomes a movement and a attack in one Ooh. combat action. By a pack of these things, they could no wave combo. He gets into a group for lightning breath. Oh, dude, nice. Well, lightning breath is a like a line, so it's not I know. as easy. But you would definitely, yeah, you could. Um, or break it, or break up your party lines. Or I really like this monster variant because it creates uh, a very mobile combat mobile because not only is he moving but he's forcing everyone else to move mm -hmm. um and putting them somewhere where there's a lot of hazards that could really have a big excuse the pun impact <laughs> right you know the lightning breath is pretty cool but i don't feel like that that is meant to be the focus of this particular build it's mostly the fact that um on arrival he just aoe's this out of everything and you could put one against an entire party um, a level of party, most definitely. Yeah, and <laughs> I think that um, you could even lead into this really easy talking about how, you know, there's constantly sounds of thunder, but there's, when it's not storming or something, you know? Smithers, release the hounds. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely see them being tough to nail down, and uh, party members trying to uh, keep it locked down, but they can't. Well, yeah, especially because it can teleport. definitely adds a, a level of uh, complexity. So, I didn't actually stipulate that it's optional, but the booming doesn't have to happen when they teleport. Well, why um, not? But it just seems so badass. Why wouldn't you? You know, it's like every anime you've ever seen when somebody comes out of a bolt of lightning and just sends out this massive shockwave, sending chairs and tables in all directions and shit. Nice. So, that is our monster variant of the podcast, The Stormhound. And now, onto our encounter. Rescue in the Wind. We've talked in the past of how important it is to have a lot of good weather and how important that is to making your story interesting. Um, your adventurers journey along the path just has come upon you, and now, but then the, the clouds have rolled in, the skies are graying, the rain now pours down, hammering upon y your party members, lightning rays down from the sky, and the wind's picking up. 
Yeah, and they're forced to take uh, shelter in a small village, right? In that small village, these winds are starting to pick up, you know, and destroy the buildings, and they're starting to throw carts everywhere, and children and, and people are being pulled from their homes and are going everywhere, and, you know, your, your, your heroes are challenged with trying to either rescue one person or rescue many. Oh, look, there's a cow from Twister. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really think that this could be a very interesting non-combat encounter because they're not just fighting monsters. They're fighting all the debris that is flailing through the air. They're fighting nature itself. Yeah, and you know, they might if they're if they're carrying say a young a young girl and a giant barn comes sailing at them, you know, how are what are they going to do? How are they going to use their powers to 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 deal with that? No, my barbarian you try to headbutt it and lose <laughs> and hope for the best. I, I really just kind of imagine, like, the cattle being tossed everywhere. Just like, <laughs> chickens are f- flying away. And, you know, maybe if it's strong enough, might be sending some oxen or some cows or goats. At least, go- the, at least some goats. There goes, especially. But the, the real goal is to put your uh, test your character's um, stamina and your, their clever thinking on how to deal with uh, such a unique situation with high wind i mean there's a million things that can come down when they're making out there trying to make their saves to not get blown on their ass well, what happens if they get blown away do they get picked up and swept up in this hurricane and and, and get blown away and lost or uh thrown into a nearby forest where there might be some other big baddie waiting um rock you like a hurricane <laughs> but what i think will really get them the most is when they fail to save somebody oh yeah if you turn this into a check where not only are they trying to run from point A to point B, but they're trying to protect somebody, um, hold them in their hands and protect them with their body or something like that, what happens if that barbarian who's who's really tender-hearted and, and has this little girl in his hands and as he's running back, she gets clocked with something and it kills her? Whoops! How is that How is that going to affect your, your party? Well, they'll most definitely be demoralizing. I'm sure they would. It would really be a struggle for them to 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 cope with that and especially if it's not just one person but it's it's many mm-hmm. you know do they stay do they then decide to stay and help you know rebuild the town Ooh, especially if it's their home village oh if it's their home village yeah definitely because now they got personal attachments to those if that uh that um human fighter is you know carrying his mom in his arms when she's hit by random sign that just came in impaled her or something you know a piece of roofing or something yep um you definitely can you, this is a good opportunity to not only test their non-combat prowess, but to really pull at those strings that really make make them care about stuff. If these are NPCs that they know that they've come to love and are repeat in their story, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. That's it can be it can be kind of rough, and it can really be a uh, a rough game on your party. But you wanna you wanna include those types of things, make them cherish the lives that they're trying to save. And, you know, when it's all said and done, are they going to hang out for a little while and fix everything? Or are they just going to continue on adventuring, you know? Indeed. So that is our encounter of the podcast, Rescue in the Wind. All right. <laughs> and now on to our magic item day, Oaken Spellbook of Capturing. This actually was an item came up by you. Uh, you gave yeah. me the idea, and I kind of crunched the quote-unquote numbers for it in the features. But uh, in addition to providing all the features of a normal spellbook, this item has been imbued with the power to capture a beast creature of a CR rating 1 or less. Target a creature you can sh- see and shout the command word. <laughs> and it better be I choose you. <laughs> on the failed save, the creature is magically stored in the page of a book. The book can only store one at a time, and you must first release the beast stored inside before capturing another. 
Now that's that's really interesting because they can't just say, "Oh, I like that monster. I'm going to capture it." They have to already have pulled out what's in the book, mm-hmm. and I can envision this being a, like a ritual, so they can't dare, do it during combat. Right. Um, and that's probably what I would do. I would say that this is a ritual. Uh, that's a ritual spell to release it, and an action to bind it. Right. You can use your action to summon forth the beast trapped within the book's pages. The summoned beast is friendly to you and your companions. Roll initiative for the beast, which has its own turns. It obeys any verbal command that you issue to it. No action is required by you. If you don't issue any command, it defends itself from hostile creatures, but otherwise takes no actions. And of course, the DM has the stats for it. So yeah. This is a really a fun item to allow you to add a little more oomph to your party. Especially if you've got a low-level group, or you want so, you want a, a spellcaster that wants a minion but doesn't necessarily have the features for it. Now, obviously, the CR rating one or less is quite limiting, but for a CR one, you can get a big brown bear as a you can ride as a mount. So, <laughs> you came you came up with this. What do, what do you what do you all the uses do you see for this? Uh, quite a bit, actually. I mean, I could easily see you like being attacked by a hostile creature and, and just go, I don't want to fight this. Yeah, if it, if if it doesn't, uh, and I didn't really put anything uh, in there that uh, th- this is supposed to be limited one per once per dawn, um, so you can't keep trying. Yeah. Um, let's make sure that's clear. You can uh, only do this once per day. So if it does fail, you can't. Or you're not gonna be able to capture it. Or you can basically deploy it to make a quick getaway as they kind of hold the back line for you. Oh, there you go, and then just get a new one later. Yep. Yeah. Do you watch uh, Naruto at all? I used to. I very much envisioned when you talked about this, there's a guy who would write in ink and then pull pages out of a book and it would come to life. Yep. That's kind of what I envision in happening here. He has like a little image that gets, you know, magically printed onto his sheet and he pulls out the page and throws it out and then it shapes into whatever beast you captured. So I personally, if you're the DM and you're giving this tool away, be careful. Either give it to him at a really high level where a level one monster is not a big deal or maybe they need help. If they need help... Um, in combat, and you don't want to add an NPC uh, player, this is probably something you could do as well. Actually, well, if you have the ability to like uh, speak with animals too, I could easily see you like uh, capturing like a bird of some kind, for example, making it scout for you. Um, if it's a beast that can it can be used for utility, maybe you capture something that can burrow, you know, Ooh. and dig holes for you. You know, you can you've got a portable cave, basically. Hey, we need a place to rest. Yeah, I summon you. Dig me a hole. Okay, go back. Go go combat badger. <laughs> so that is our magic item of the podcast, Oaken's Spellbook of Capturing. All right, so we're going to do something a little different. Uh, I got an email, and I wasn't—I was planning on putting this in another episode, but it kind of—it kind of got me kind of thinking and, and kind of irritated, actually. Um, this email comes from Jonathan. Then now he gave me lots of tips and stuff in this email, and this wasn't even directly tied, I think, to what he was getting at as far as a DM tip, but I kind of want to read it as that. Uh, our dungeon master tip of the podcast is don't, don't be, be a, a dick. dick and you can avoid being a dick by not killing characters when their players are there. So yeah. we're going to read this. This is pretty interesting. I want to tell you of my one and only character death. Yes, it does happen sometimes. I won't make excuses, but there is a reason why he died. Gort was a monk who was granted access to study in a monastery residing in limbo. When he exited this area, one night had passed but two years of age was added to him. His training granted him manipulation of time. All of this had taken me personally almost two years of game sessions. Every Monday, 
four to five to six hours. One of our party members had picked up a magical rod and was going to have it identified before the last boss fight. A few days after our Monday meeting, I was told that I was going to have to work. So I told a friend to, cue dramatic pause, play my character. He said he had a rod, the rod identified as cure light wounds, but wasn't 100% sure. Well, or when the next boss fight began, I was kicking butt. And after a while, was heavily injured. So my friend pulled me back from the front lines and used the rod on me. A giant fireball came out and scorched me to cinders. Whoops. I guess he shouldn't have trusted the guy who identified the rod. I found out next week about my monk's fate. I had to create a brand new character for the last boss fight. I was shoehorned in very awkwardly. I used a memory spell to make the party member think that I was a dear old trusted friend and was given a whirlwind exposition about what was going on because he was new to the party. He had no real prior knowledge. So the last fight uh, went well, we won, but I'm still mad and upset that I wasn't able to play my character and save myself. What do you think about that, Ian? Yeah, like, first and foremost, it does seem to be a pretty dick move to kill off a player's character when that player is not there. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing where if I play a character and he dies, it's at least the result of my actions. Right. Even if the rod was unidentified, I feel like the DM should have taken a point with that and said, tried to save him in some way, shape, or form. I don't believe, in my opinion, that any character that's being played by another person should ever die due to... Someone else's actions in yes. that case. Yes. I, mean, I mean, it's one thing for you to die of another ca- player's actions when you're there. Right. Because you have some say in it. You have some sort of control. But to find out a character you've been playing for two years is dead after because you had to work. And would you have played that character the same way as the way his buddy did? You know, would he have made the same decisions? Would he ever been in the situation where he needed to get blown up by a wand? Maybe, maybe not. But who knows? Um... But that's not the point. Right. The What do you think, what action do you think the DM could have done in that situation when the other person decides to pull him sideways to heal him with this quote-unquote wand of cure wounds? Do something else. Like maybe change the effect of the wand, maybe have it backfire or something? Right. I, w- I, I think I would have done something like that. I probably would have had it backfire only because he tried to use it on that person. Right. It's up to the DM to really make those decisions. The closest I have ever come to dealing with something like like that was, I think I had to work some night, whatever, and I showed up to a game late, Mm -hmm. and they were, and I let everybody know I was going to be late because, well, work. But they ran my character anyway because he was the only healer of the group. And when I arrived, I was told, oh, one more hit, you guys will have died. Oh, okay then. <laughs> but yeah, that's the close I've ever had. To, yeah, but it, how to make you feel when that happened, though, for an instant? Holy crap! Yeah, because especially if it's something you've had for a long time, you know, I would I would hate that. Of course, that uh, that's also the risk you run if the, he knew in advance that that was even a risk. Right. I mean, it, you should always know it's a risk, but is that their policy to? Have somebody run your character, or is that something he had so he makes sure he got experience and stuff? Right. I personally prefer to have him just plucked out and have him gone for some reason, because I don't want to have to deal with that. But real dick move, dude. Real dick move. Um, it's like, I get it, but... Yeah, there, I mean, you could have had that. That wand could have pointed any other direction. Mm-hmm. It could have backfired. It could have... Exploded. 
Yeah, maybe just, well, yeah, failed. Well, it did explode. I think that was part of the problem. Well, explode it with a fireball. Mm. Um, but, I, I mean, I don't know what the right answer is, but I definitely don't think you should be doing that. Um, yeah, short version, don't kill a player's character when the player's not there. Yeah. Unless it's a TPK, that might be a little bit different. Um, all right, so that is it for our Dungeon Master tip of the podcast. Don't, don't be, be a, a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by not killing your characters when your player's aren't running them our player tip of the podcast is don't Don't be be a a dick dick. and you can avoid dickitude by be quick and concise on your turns don't make people wait for you yeah uh we actually got a uh any an idea from gabe actually over interparty conflict and he had a really good idea um when you're rolling your dice as a player your attack dice your sneak attack dice your damage dice all your little dice that you roll pick them all up and roll them all at once I can definitely see that working in some situations, yeah. Well, it, it should work in all situations, I would imagine, because you're only going to care about the other ones, A, if you hit. Right. Right? And then you're not all searching for all the dice that have already been... Oh, you're not going to... Oh, okay, I rolled a, uh, an 18. Does that hit? Oh, it does? Okay, Um. so I've got to grab... Okay, that's my that's my long, my long, my short sword. That's a 1d6, and um, here's my sneak attacks. I need these ones, too. And, you know, that really alone does over five or six players will really slow the game down. If you just have them held in your hand... It could definitely speed things up, yeah. And ready to go? Because if you have them in your hand, what do you already know? How much damage you're going to do. And what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Right? That should be the thought. If you are if you already know what you're going to do and you're holding your dice, you already know what's going on. Right? You already know what your plan is. So this directly affects your ability to know what you're going to do. Right. Um, I think that it's a real simple thing. Now, some things are take a lot of hands. You know, if you're a big fireball, you got a whole handful of them. But or you're playing uh, Sh- Shadowrun, lots and lots of d6s. One of the other uh, things that this really, I think this really helps, is that by having them all in advance enrolled, you're not wasting time. Yeah, and that's really the you know nobody wants to wait for you you know if you're planning your turn ahead of time and you already have your dice ready to go as soon as your turn hits you can say what you're going to do drop the dice or drop the dice then say what you're going to do right um i mean well what you're going to do first then drop the dice yeah you know long long turns really slow down the game and this is a really pro tip that gabe sent us that really can make it a lot easier to just speed up the game without really any additional change to your process. Now, occasionally long terms do happen because sometimes you're playing for one thing, but then something drastic changes the whole field for one reason or another. That does happen, but I don't think that in most games, you know where everyone's going by the time it's your turn. You know that, okay, they've all attacked this guy, so I should probably attack that guy. Even if it's the turn before yours, you should have a pretty good handle on things. I didn't say that way I said it always happens, but it does happen right. occasionally. I think that, um, but yeah, holding your dice together and ready to go before you, and just throwing them, because it really doesn't, if you think about it, you get to throw more dice, right? You get to throw a handful of dice and, oh, my D20 says I missed. Okay. I don't got to worry about the rest. And players like throwing lots of dice. Yeah. And it, it actually makes the game, uh, it, it gives you that option to really throw those dice more often. Cause you can you can you imagine throwing your you know your your advantaged attack roll and you know five or five d d sixes, and then seeing like four sixes and then missing on the attack that would that would suck to get like all high dice and then miss on the attack roll. It happens. And you're like no devastation. But yeah, that's a really quick easy tip to really just speed up your game with little or no eff- additional effort on your part. So that is our player tip of the podcast. Don't Don't be be a a dick. dick.
And you can avoid dickitude by by rolling your dice together. Um, thank you, Gabe, for that submission. We really appreciate it. That's awesome. Indeed. I'm, I've never really... I don't know why I never thought of that before, I don't think. I've actually seen it done in some games, too. So, yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Please join us for our next episode when we hear feedback from our heroes. And we shall be discussing mass combat. Yes. I'm really excited for this. Um, we're going to have a special guest with us, um, RJade from uh, Game Master Stash. Awesome. So that'll be really exciting. Ian... If they want to send us any ideas for topics or any Unearthed Arcana uh, ideas, how can they do that? Why, they can do a lot of things. They get giant contacts on, uh, on social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, whatever. But they can also email us directly to at critacademy.gmail.com. Yeah. Awesome. Or they can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Crit Academy. Well, we hope you enjoyed your experience here at Crit Academy. And if you did... You can help others find the show by hopefully leaving a five-star re- reviews on iTunes and other platforms. Yep. Be sure to give us a like and share. Make sure to, sc- to subscribe to the show at CritAcademy.com so we can help you on your future adventures, as well as a chance to win cool prizes each and every week. I am your host, Justin. And I'm Ian. Thank you for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. And keep those backup holding handy. Mm-hmm. <laughs>